Welcome. I'm Anastasia Glova, bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Full and edited versions of our podcasts are available on our website at www.cato.org. On behalf of the Cato Institute, I'd like to wish our listeners a fantastic July 4th holiday. As you enjoy your fire-grilled burgers, festivities, and fireworks, I hope you also consider the meaning of the holiday. On July 4th, 1776, the founders of this country claimed their independence from Britain. 230 years later, we ask Edward Crane, founder and president of the Cato Institute, whether it is still true that, as Thomas Paine wrote, that government is best, which governs least. How did big government conservatism emerge as a political movement? Well, if I had to say when it started, I would point to 1984 when Ronald Reagan had an opportunity to really move the small government, the Reagan-Goldwater agenda, forward and instead ran for re-election as a very, very popular president on a theme of mourning in America. Instead of laying out an agenda for radically reducing the size of the federal government, he opted to take an easy way out. He won 49 states. If he'd had a good agenda for privatizing Social Security, fundamental tax reform, and other opportunities to abolish the Department of Energy and the Education Department and the Commerce Department, maybe he would have won 40 states, but he would have had a mandate. And so that was a mistake. And then a worse mistake was in 1988 when he allowed George Bush, George H.W. Bush, to ascend to the Republican nomination. I mean, Reagan was so popular by 88 that just a raised eyebrow would have cooked Bush's goose and he wouldn't have been the nominee. I always say that Bush was never elected president. Reagan was elected for a third term. And, you know, Reagan had lunch with this guy once a week for nearly eight years. And if he didn't realize that Bush didn't have an ideological bone in his body, he should have. Because the first thing Bush did when he got in as president was to get rid of every Reagan appointee. And that was the beginning of big government conservatism. Now, a parallel phenomenon that was happening in the late 80s and early 90s was the rise of supply-side economics. And this was kind of inadvertent because most supply-siders are for less government. I'm a supply-sider. I think taxes are too high. I think marginal tax rates matter and that incentives matter. At the same time, the people who were the intellectual gurus of that movement, people like Jude Winiski, Jack Kemp, Art Laffer, specifically had a strategy of saying, you know what, we shouldn't talk about the proper role of government. We shouldn't talk about spending cuts. We should just talk about tax cuts. And a lot of the best and the brightest on our side of the political spectrum got involved in that movement. And I think it made them lazy and ineffective in their ability to defend limited government. So that was a phenomenon. And then the other thing I think that really added to this rise of big government conservatism is the advent of the role of neoconservatives. Our good friend Jim Buchanan, the Nobel laureate who teaches at George Mason University and is a distinguished senior fellow at Cato, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal several years ago where he warned that the emphasis on economic efficiency and economic growth at the expense of focusing on liberty is going to create a philosophical vacuum that will be filled by people who have a big government agenda. And I think that's what's happened with the neocons. You know, the self-proclaimed godfather of neoconservatism, Irving Kristol, had a piece in his son's magazine, the Weekly Standard, where he specifically said that we neocons believe in big government. He criticized Barry Goldwater. He criticized F.A. Hayek. He praised FDR. And uh, so you have a philosophy there. Not only do the neocons want to have American empire, which is to me a very un-American phenomenon, 
But domestically, it's often overlooked that they are the ones behind the faith-based initiative. They're the ones behind the federal government takeover of education in America. So you have an intellectual force now that is kind of dominating the conservative movement that is very much in favor of big government. Conservatives today seem chagrined at the rise of big government conservatism. What do you say to that? Well, one hopes they're chagrined. I mean, in the wake of 9-11, there has been an unfortunate willingness to sacrifice liberty in the name of security. Benjamin Franklin said that people that are willing to do that deserve neither security nor liberty. So there's a, a certain hypocrisy on the right to the extent they're willing to give up their civil liberties in the name of defending against terrorism. I think that's a mistake. But there is a growing recognition now that the people who have been in charge of the Republican Party and the conservative movement have kind of given up the principled approach to limited government. Do the courts carry some of the blame for this? Undoubtedly, they do. The separation of powers meant that the Supreme Court was supposed to enforce the limits on the federal government that were uh, contained in the Constitution. You know, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution has most of the enumerated powers that the federal government has, and they are few and well-defined, as Madison said. And we've kind of forgotten that. Certainly we forgot it with the New Deal. The, one of the intellectual architects of the New Deal was a guy named uh, Rexford Tugwell, who said uh, it took a tortured interpretation of a document intended to prevent it for us to create the New Deal. Well, that document was the Constitution of the United States. And we have not protected federalism through the Supreme Court for a long time. Then we had a decision in the mid-90s, uh, the Lopez decision, that suggested that a federal law that told the people of Texas what kind of gun control laws they could have was unconstitutional because the federal government didn't have the power to do that. And that was a, the first step since the New Deal where the Supreme Court said the federal government does not have plenary power to tell the states what to do. But that was kind of it. There were one or two other minor decisions that were consistent with that. But more recently, we've had the uh, race decision in uh, California on medical marijuana, where the Supremes voted, I think, six to three to say that the federal drug laws were more important than what the people of California thought about medical marijuana. And, and uh, my colleague, Roger Pallon, uh, dubbed uh, Nino Scalia, who's supposed to be a federalist, as a fair-weather federalist, because to him, his precious drug war was more important than the rights of the people of California. In an article that you wrote for the Financial Times last year, you made the claim that certain neoconservatives who openly call for an American empire are guilty of thinking that's profoundly un-American. How so? Well, all the individuals who were involved in that project for the New American Century, including Bill Kristol and Wolfowitz, have been clamoring for American empire for more than a decade. And that is just not what America is about. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be peaceful relations with all nations, that we wish them well, but we're not going to come to their defense because our defense is our own liberty. And being, as Reagan said, a shining city on a hill is the best way to ensure liberty around the world to provide an example of it. But the idea that we can be some kind of a nation builder flies in the face of what we know about economics and politics here domestically, and certainly it applies in spades internationally, as we've learned from the Iraq debacle. So I just think it's very inconsistent with the nature of our nation to try to go around the world uh, setting everybody straight. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.